I wonder if any of you remember this film, do you? The Butler. Very good film, I recommend it to you. Um, it's based on the uh, true story of this man, Eugene Allen, who was a black man who was born into rural poverty um, in the US. And he, as was happened sometimes with black slaves, he was given what was seen to be um, a privileged position. He became somebody who served in the house of the plantation where his parents were and where he was born into slavery. And he moved to Washington as a young man and he became a butler at the White House. And he ended up being a butler to eight US presidents down through the 50s, the 60s, and into the 1970s. And in, his, in the film, and I'm not sure whether this is, is true to the, the actual story or not, but in the film, his son uh, is a university student, and his son joins um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s in the US. And in fact, his son becomes what was called a freedom rider. And freedom riders were people who deliberately uh, went on the bus, that's why they were called riders, uh, into the places where black people were forbidden to go in order to challenge the discrimination against them. And as you can imagine, that, that's a pretty risky thing to do in those days because often these people were arrested, sometimes they were beaten, they were mistreated because technically they were breaking the law. They were not allowed as black people to go into these areas and they deliberately did it in order to challenge the law. And so in part, they, um, the film is about the struggle to bring dignity and equal rights to the black population in the US. One of the interesting sort of cross-references in the film is that there's um, a scene in the film where the, in America, in the civil rights movement in the, in the 1970s, they are protesting against the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. So that kind of uh, cross-cultural um, uh, um, thing happening between the, the civil rights movement in the US and the arrest and imprisonment of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And from our point of view, just in terms of thinking about this today, one of the really interesting things is that actually both those things, the, the civil rights movement in the US and the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, have their roots you could argue, in this passage in the New Testament, in Mary's song, in Luke chapter 1. In the US, it's clear, I think, that the, the strong Christian tradition of the slave population among the black population was one of the things that allowed those men and women to endure incredible violence and um, abuse 
and survive that with something of their humanity intact. It continued to grow in the face of inhumane conditions. And ultimately, it was the thing that enabled them to challenge and to eradicate those laws of, the, of discrimination that discriminated on a racial basis. It's no coincidence, you know, that um, Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, who was the leader of the civil rights movement in the U.S., was a minister of the gospel. It's from the gospel that those principles of freedom and justice come. In South Africa, the influence of the church actually is much more compromised than it was even in the United States. Because the white Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa tried to give a theological backing to apartheid. They developed a, a system uh, uh, that they called the um, um, distinct separation of races. Well, of course, actually it was a front for um, white privilege. But they, the Dutch Reformed Church, the white Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, provided that sort of backdrop to apartheid. The interesting thing, though, is that they, the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, in, in face of that justification by the white Dutch Reformed Church, said, this, this uh, apartheid, it's a heresy. It's a heresy. That's a strong thing to say. Because actually what it means is, you cannot support this and say that you're a Christian. You're not, you're a heretic. And I remember as a student, actually, at New College um, in the 1980s, a guy called the Reverend Alan Bosack, who was what they called then a, a, a coloured, he was, he was characterised as coloured in South African terms, coming to Edinburgh. And he was the president of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches and supporting that case and saying, you should not be under any illusions. This, this uh, doctrine of apartheid is opposed to the gospel. So this Song of Mary, this Magnificat, Magnificat is just the name that comes, by the way, from the Latin translation of these verses. It's the first word that comes in the Latin translation. It celebrates a God who delights in the humble, who brings down the proud, who fills the empty with good things and sends the rich away without anything. This God is on the side of the poor and the dispossessed and the marginalized. And that's why, actually, if you look down through history, these words in Luke chapter 1 have often been banned from public reading. In fact, in Guatemala, as late as the 1980s, it was an offence, it was a criminal offence to read these words in public. Why? Because they so obviously put God on the side of the poor and the dispossessed. And those that are in uh, power and in authority and in privilege don't like that. And yet there they are in the, the scriptures. But as well as being a, a biblical charter for freedom and human rights, this is also an intimate expression of the faith of a young girl 
who is willing to be obedient to the purposes of God. And I want to try and look at it from that point of view in terms of what this is as an expression of Mary's faith. Mary was probably a teenager at this time. And this is a remarkable statement of faith on her part. And the first thing really that I noticed about it is that it's a personal expression of faith. This is deeply personal. The pronouns that stand out, my soul, my spirit, my saviour, call me blessed, done great things for me. This is no um, academic treatise. This is about the things that Mary feels in her heart. It's theology rooted in personal experience, the personal experience of grace, the care of Almighty God for me and for you. Let's just say that again, you know, the care of Almighty God for me. <laughs> That's just extraordinary, isn't it? And it tra that, that personal understanding transforms human lives like nothing else. It's no coincidence, I think, that one of the best known and best loved parts of the whole Bible is the 23rd Psalm. Why? Because it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a personal expression of faith. There's a lovely way of, of, of actually remembering that kind of personal aspect to it. Do you know what it is? I don't know, maybe I've told you this before. If you, if you use your left hand and you do the first five words of that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? So the my comes on your ring finger, where for many of us who are married, we wear our wedding ring. The Lord is my shepherd. It's as close as that. It has that intimate quality about it. And you know, I, I, I'm sure you share this belief, but it's my belief, absolutely firm, firm belief, that the Lord wants us to have that, that personal quality of relationship, every one of us. The Lord is my shepherd. Whether you're married or single, <laughs> that's, the, that's the depth of the relationship that Mary has. Just this, this young girl, this, this teenager who had a, a personal understanding of God's care for her. And it, it's unmerited. That's the other thing about it, of course. It, you know, the remarkable thing about that um, sentence that the Lord Almighty, God Almighty, cares for me, is that there's nothing I have done to deserve that. And there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that Mary was in any way odd or, or you know, particularly holy. I think that's one of the difficulties I have with the whole sort of more Roman Catholic exaltation of Mary. It suggests that in some ways she was, you know, she deserved that, but she didn't any more than the rest of us. Entirely unmerited love. Personal grace. And it's free. It's <laughs> free. But, I think as Bonhoeffer once said, it's not cheap. 
by which I mean that the path of discipleship that that free grace takes us on is tough. For Mary, it was very tough, wasn't it? She just received that grace, that personal understanding of who God was, and it, it, it transformed her life, and it can transform our lives. But it will lead us to places that sometimes we don't want to go. Because it's not cheap. It demands much of us. Great love demands great sacrifice. And the more that we love God, the more that it may ask of us. So Mary's experience, personal. Mary's insight is very profound. Song speaks of a God who scattered the proud in their inmost thoughts. And I still have, I'm, I'm old enough to have the AV in my head, you know. <laughs> scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, <laughs> is the phrase from the authorised version. What does that mean? Well, it means certainly that God upsets our pride. Pride is based on the idea that we're better than others. Better because of our education or our upbringing, our behaviour, our nationality or race. Better because we are the loyal ones. We are the trustworthy ones. We are the ones who do what is required. We're just better. <laughs> Aren't we? Historically, pride has been seen as one of the seven deadly sins. And what that means is, pride is one of the things that can destroy the life of grace in us. It can kill it. And one of my observations from 35 years of ministry is that pride is toxic to healthy church life. Pride corrodes and corrupts the health of Christian congregations. Interestingly, it doesn't prevent congregations looking very successful. And actually, sometimes it's when a congregation is outwardly successful and has a reputation for success, that is precisely when the risk of pride is at its greatest. Pride is the belief that our culture, our style, our teaching is better than anyone else. And the object of pride can be pretty much anything. It can be a building, it can be a tradition, a history. We're better because of this and this and this and this. And if pride is toxic to healthy church life, it's also true that the antidote to pride promotes healthy church life. And the antidote to pride is, of course, humility. Real humility is hard work, isn't it? Because it involves letting go of that very idea that we are right. But I think as we let go, and as we live in that humility, one of the things that happens, and, and you see this, I'm sure you know this, what happens as we let go of our pride is it brings us to a place of creativity, actually, because we've let go of the idea that we've got it all right, and we become open to the idea that there are other ideas out there, there are other ways of doing things, there are other cultures, there are other races, there are other languages, and all of that is immensely enriching. And it's, the access into that is through humility. And this phrase, in the imagination of their hearts, God scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts, and I wonder if 
partly that's a reference to what the Holy Spirit does in us. Because usually we change not by public argument or debate, but by this still small voice. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that whispers to us and says, do you know what? You're not half as great as you think you are. <laughs> there, are there are different people out there, they've got different ideas, and you need to listen. Scatters the proud in the imagination of our hearts, gets underneath our proud certainties to nurture the seed of grace and truth. Mary's personal experience, Mary's profound insight. And lastly, just this, that Mary's God was one who was powerful, performed mighty deeds. God brought down rulers. God brought down rulers. I wonder if um, any of you will remember what happened about this time of year um, nine years ago. In fact, it was the 15th of December 2013. Any offers? <laughs> well, I'll give you a few hints. It was a worldwide event, and they, um, it, it was covered on TV and social media and, and right across, wall to wall. There were about 4,500 people that attended this event, but they reckoned that there was an estimated 21 million people that watched it on TV. Any ideas? No. Okay, I'll tell you. It was Nelson Mandela's funeral. Nelson Mandela. That man who was in prison for, what was it, 25 years? And became the first black president of South Africa. And one of the really remarkable things about that was that through the, the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, people predicted that there would be a bloodbath in South Africa because of apartheid. And you can only keep a, you know, a majority section of the population down for so long before they start to say, we've had enough, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. There was no bloodbath in South Africa. And it was largely because of the moral leadership of that man, Nelson Mandela. God brought down rulers in South Africa. And that same God has that power in our world today, nine years later, and in our lives. This is a God who brings down rulers and lifts up the humble. Mary's personal experience, Mary's profound insight, Mary's powerful God. And the waiting is nearly over. Let's pray.